Hi there, and welcome to episode 6 of The Game Pit. This is another one of our Picking Over the Bones episodes. Yeah, again today we're going to be talking about some games that we've played recently and share our thoughts on them. I'm going to be talking about Augustus, uh, Dixit and Temple Run Speed Sprint and Galaxy Trucker. Sean, what would you like to talk about? My three games today are Elder Sign, Star Trek Fleet Captains and Kingsburg. You can catch all our episodes along with other gaming goodness at 2d6.org and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. game called Star Trek Fleet Captains. Now this is a 2011 release from WizKid Games. The designing team are Mike Elliott who did Quarriers, Thunderstone and the upcoming Lord of the Rings dice building game. Brian Kinsella who did some of the Hunger Games especially I think District 12 was one of his and he did the Lord of the Rings Nazgul game that you might have seen around. And the last of the trio is Ethan Pasternak, who did Arcane Legions and a game called Pirate's Quest for Davy Jones Gold. Click Captains plays two or four players and is billed as 75 minutes or so. It's basically, it's a point allowance system, dice rolling, exploration, tile placement and some combat involved in the game. So in no particular order, players are going to pick their ships. And these ships have a number on the side of them, which is their value. And players are going to be able to pick ships equal to the victory point target of the game. So if the victory point is 10, then you can only have the ships that total value up to 10 points. Each ship has, as many of the WizKids items do, have the hero click style base with a various power settings. But we'll go into that later. You next will choose four command decks. Now there's ten command decks for each side, the Klingons and the Federation. And each command deck adds a little bit something. something. Some of them are about investigation, some of them are about pure combat, some of them are about defence from combat. Obviously the Klingon side is very combat heavy and the Federation is very exploration heavy. There is a definite mix and there is a definite art to picking the right ones for you. The crux of the game in terms of scoring victory points is mission cards. You're going to draw these mission cards, and they come in three specific types, and they are science, influence, and combat. And you will carry out these missions, either in secret or in plain view of the opponent, and they're going to score your victory points. So if you haven't done already, you're going to lay a play area down by laying location tiles, uh, there's various layouts you can you can make. There's a couple of suggested ones, but you can choose whatever you want. On the on these location tiles, you're going to have planets, stars, dead space, etc. That's how you traverse the Star Trek universe by using these location tiles. A very very basic explanation of how you play the game. You're going to get three major actions to use. No matter how many ships you've got, you only get three actions. Now, these are basic things like move, do a system test, attack, do an encounter on one of the location tiles. There's a number of free actions that you can do, which you can adjust the power on your clicks at the bottom. Uh, this is important because sometimes you're going to need more combat-heavy 
adjustments and sometimes you're going to need more acceleration or movement adjustments. So that's, that's a big part of the game, adjusting your ship to the right power adjustment for you. Uh, you can discard your mission command cards in this phase. You can play cards. You can, you can generally just mix up your command and mission decks to get ones that suit you better. And that's a general overview of the game. There is a lot of other things going on. There is combat that is quite intricate in the way it's done. And as I said, you do have encounters when you go onto location tiles. But the general gist of the game is the locations are all face down. You're exploring the map and then you're coming in with your opponent and sometimes you're going to be battling. Sometimes you're going to be racing to do things to score victory points. A very basic overview of the game. Ronan, what are your thoughts on this game? As I tend to do, can we start by talking about the components, Sean? I've got issues with all the different components here, but the two main ones I'll go through are, I mean, the tiles, which you make the board out of, they're a bit thin and crappy, they're not really on thick cardboard stock, they're not nice. It's a other game by WizKids that they don't seem to put the care into making it nice and, and enjoyable and, and play with, you know? And secondly, and most notably, those ship pieces. My goodness me, they are horrific. Not only do they snap all the time, and everyone I know who owns this game has had to get replacement pieces, but also the clicks down the bottom, they don't work half the time. How many people have got ships that have got stuck click mechanisms on them? Sean, I know you've had your own frustrations with them. Those pieces. When I first opened the box, I was absolutely delighted with those pieces, because they're not very good, but they're decent representations of all your favourite Star Trek ships. You've got the old Enterprise, the new Enterprise, the Defiant, some of the names of ships that you've heard mentioned, the Voyager, in in various episodes. I was delighted, and I wasn't too bothered about, you know, the very, very flimsy location tiles, which I guess the wind is going to blow them away, or if you jog the table, they're going to overlap each other. They're very, yeah, they're very annoying, but I thought the ship quality was great, until, as you said, they started snapping on me, and the, the click spaces stopped. And even sometimes when you can't move the click spaces, by the time you've done it... All the excitement's gone out of your move. You're trying to get ready for a combat round, and it's taken you five minutes, and you've had to go and get a screwdriver, and you've been prizing at this thing, and you've finally got it down. And by that time, everyone's like, okay, well, that's, that was great. Yeah, they're not great. WizKids, I have to say, are very, very good in their after-sales. They will replace your broken items, any problems you have. They're very quick to do so. You just have to fill in an, a form online, and it's, it's sorted out for you. But for £70, this is a expensive game this is right at the top end of the market in terms of expense for 70 pounds i think you can be entitled to a little bit better i'll tell you what else you could be entitled to a better rule book <laughs> i was playing this the other day and we had to look up some rules and i read the rule book previously and i didn't think i felt the need to go through it and then i started going through it again and do you know that it's page 21 of the rule book where they actually tell you what the turn structure is and how the game plays You've got 20 pages of information before you have a clue how the game plays. And trying to find a rule in that rule book is ridiculous. They are not in any way laid out. It's just impossible. The rule book drives me crazy. Yeah, for the love of God, put an appendices in the rule book. I think we were playing it recently and we just wanted clarification. We kind of knew the rule, but we wanted clarification to make sure we were doing something correct. I think we ended up spending about 10 minutes looking through the rule book. Because it's not laid out in a proper format. It's not laid out like any other rule book I've ever seen. The information's all there. And when you do find it, it's quite easy to understand. But it's just finding it. It's crazy. 
one thing I want, I want to delve now into the... Uh, we've talked about the components of the game, which not are not great, but still, there's a game there. Let's talk about the game a little bit now. There's been a lot of talk, and between us as well, about the balance between the Klingons and the Federation. The Federation tend to get a lot more of the influence and science missions, influence specifically, and the Klingons tend to be all combat heavy. Now, I think what we've found is that the influence missions tend to be really, really simplistic and don't need a whole lot of setting up and a whole lot of thinking out. It's things like transport someone from a habitable planet and back again, or build this, or go to one of these type planets and get four points. This sometimes can be a, a little bit of an imbalance, or do you feel that that's wrong? I don't know that there's an imbalance. I'm not sure really I've played it enough to tell. I've played it maybe half a dozen times now. And But what I will say is, it's too easy to win by being boring. Those missions where you move a ship in, you say, right, I'm beaming down with this one. You move another ship to the same space, you say, right, I'm beaming up with this one. That's a victory point. Or possibly two victory points for something like that. And on, in a ten victory point game, that's it's ridiculous. And it's boring. And you don't have to explore to do it. And you don't have to encounter your opposition to do it. Yeah, there is an issue with the missions. I do think it feels harder to be the Klingons, but it actually feels more fun to be the Klingons because you're forced to spread out and try and get after Starfleet. And you're actually forced to think a bit more long term in that you need to set up the board position that lets you kind of cull the weakest one from the Starfleet group of ships. So the Klingons is actually more interesting to play than Starfleet, who they're always a bit boring in the TV show, weren't they, to play? Or you think to be them, it's a bit boring. And in the game, it's a tiny bit more boring to be them, I'd have to say. Yeah, I think also with the Starfleet group is the problem where unless you get out the handful, there's only really three, four ships that can compete in combat with the Klingons. Unless you pull out one of those or two of those, you're always kind of going to be dodging the Klingons and moving away and trying not to engage in combat or moving as a single fleet rather than individual ships. And it, it kind of becomes a game of cat and mouse. Which I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I think it can develop into a set way of playing as the Federation and a set way of playing as the Klingons. I um, yeah, like you say, though, that's not necessarily a negative. The fact that the two sides play differently and the Romulan expansion as well comes in and they play slightly differently as well. So the fact that the sides play differently is OK. That, that's good, in fact. It's the fact that the Starfleet side is a bit boring. Well, you've brought up the Romulans and I'd like to talk about that. Um, it was definitely on my list to talk about on this. So... You've played the Romulan expansion, which I'm very jealous of. How did that play, and did it lend anything to the game? For me, it added a third player, which just meant there's more downtime, and it seems like a lot of three-player games. Whoever gets left alone out of the three is going to win. It also made it a bit easier, I felt, to win a Starfleet, because the Klingons are really who's going to counteract that kind of turtle up and just exploit the few planets you found or what have you. And when their attention is divided between two opponents and they've got to worry about the Romulans cloaking and coming in and kind of inveigling into their area and what have you, they can't come and hit you as hard. So you get more of a chance to just picky, nicky, put down your away team, you know, establish this quietly in my own little sector and win. I think that I'd like to play more with the Romulans to see how they play and to get used to their style of play. But I don't think a third player really adds much to this game at all. I know there was a four-player team variant, right, with the original one. And 
I just don't think it adds much. It just seems to add downtime and not the experience as a two player game is fine. I like it. I like the fact that it's one on one. What I do directly affects what you do. The added downtime, I'm not fussed. Yeah, with two players, I think it is the number for this game. I think I haven't played it with four players, but I can imagine it'll get really messy with two players as the Federation and two players as the Klingons. As you said, I'll add a lot of downtime. So for me, this is definitely a two-player game. Okay, to sum up for me, and it probably hasn't been obvious from a lot of the things we've been saying, I love this game. I think it's fantastic. I think the scope in this game is amazing. First time I ever played it, I just saw endless replayability in this. All those commander, they're not massively different, but they're different enough to make it interesting to play with each of them. And when you learn each deck, you'll know exactly which ones you should be picking, and you can mix the right blend together. I think the scope to make the map bigger is excellent. You can make little pockets where there's nothing and you have to go around them. You can make a little area of space that's just a corridor. So you're linking two the two powers together, but just this tiny corridor. So that becomes a real sort of who goes first. There's so many possibilities for this game. I really enjoy playing it. I love the cat and mouse aspect of it. When I'm playing as the Federation, I am a wuss. I am darting here, there and everywhere to avoid the Klingons. When I'm the Klingons, it's just straight in. You know what? If I lose a ship, so be it. They're going to lose too. It's fun, whichever side you're playing for me. I love the game. Ronan, what do you think? Yeah, having just moaned about it for five or ten minutes, I really enjoy the game as well. I do think it's a lot of fun. There are limitations to it in terms of components and the rule being terrible. We'll get past that. It's also something you have to accept that there's a lot of random in there. When you flip over the tiles, it's random. What missions you get are random. When you come into combat, there is a dice roll involved, so there's a little bit random there. Not so much, though. But once you accept that and say, look, I'm exploring space, anything can happen, right? You might come across that nebula rift or that temporal distortion, whatever the hell is going to happen to you to do something funky, just roll with it. Just laugh and go, cool, you know, what's next? It's a lot of fun. Just get in, put your ships around, see what happens. Don't think that you can work out everything that you want to do on each turn and every tactic, because that's not possible. There's too many different things that are going to be thrown up in your face. Go with what happens, enjoy yourself, get into the theme of it, and there is a very fine game here underneath the crud. So, yeah, I really enjoy Fleet Captains. As a two-player game, I want to play it lots and lots and lots. And that was us discussing Star Trek Fleet Captains. like to talk about a very recent release in 2013 and that's Augustus from Hurricane Games and designer Paolo Mori. It's for two to six players and it's listed as taking 30 minutes which is about right. Now Hurricane is a Swiss publisher and they've published Mr. Jack, Lady Alice, Dr. Shark before so they go after the kind of lighter but still with gamey elements end of the market and they've gone after the same sort of area with this one and Paolo Mori he designed Vasco da Gama, a fairly heavy Euro, Libertalia, which was a hit last year, and Batman Gotham City, which we had a chat about in episode 5. And we actually covered Augustus very briefly in episode 5, and we've been lucky enough to have a chance to play it a few times since then. So the game is set in the last years of BC, and it's when Augustus has taken over the uh, Roman, what will be the Empire now, because he's going to be the first Emperor. 
and you're part of the ruling class and you're trying to become a consul. So you're going to go out into the provinces and you're going to try and influence senators. And in doing this, you're going to attempt to gain influence. And at the end of the game, whoever's got the most influence, scored the most points, basically, is going to be the winner. And how you play is there are cards, which are objective cards, which come in four different types. Now, they're one of three different provinces, which come in just basic colours, which are green, orange and pink. And also the senators. And what these cards all have in common are they have a list of symbols down the left hand side. These symbols correspond to these mobilisation tokens, as they're called, which are going to be in a bag and I'll come back to in a sec. Also, they all have a name and a number down the bottom just to sort out ties for, for doing certain things in the game. And some kind of victory point total in the bottom right hand corner. Either a basic score you're going to score for completing that objective or some kind of multiple or a bonus, which is always explained on the other side of the card. The other thing which most of them have is an effect which happens when you complete the objective. And again, I'll come back to that. In the middle of the table, you're going to have out a row of five different objectives which you can select from when you complete an objective. And also, there's currently 12 bonus tiles which are available at the beginning of the game and which you're going to be able to get by doing different things. The way the game is played is there are 23 of these mobilisation tokens and they have one of seven different symbols on them. And they all go in a bag. And one person starts as the town crier and they put their hand in the bag and they pull out one of the tokens and they call out what it is. Now, the different tokens have different numbers of availability. So, for example, the double sword, there's six of those in the bag of 23, whereas the legendary standard, there's only two of those. So when you look at your objective cards, you can see which symbols are more likely to come out. When someone pulls the mobilization token out, if it matches any of the symbols on your cards, objective cards, you can move one of your seven little meeples, their legionaries, and cover that area of your objective. Now, the person who's the town crier is going to carry on pulling out the symbols and calling them out, and you're going to carry on putting your legions to cover the different symbols on your objective cards. And if at any point you cover all the symbols on an objective card, you complete that objective and something happens. If the town crier ever pulls out one of the two joker tiles that are in that bag, then all the tiles go back into the bag, it resets, and you hand it on to the next person. So everyone's going to get a chance to be town crier, and everyone's going to be reacting to the mobilisation tokens as they come out. So everyone is involved at all times during the game. And when you complete an objective card, you get to put it to one side, and you also get to do any of the effects on the right-hand side of it. Now, these are various. They range from being able to place more legions straight away on the objectives you had left, or adding bonus points for completing certain things, or get, allowing you to get more legions, or messing with other players, having them having to take legions off their objectives, or different things can happen, and that's where a lot of the meat of the game is. Then you get to choose another objective. The bonus tiles I talked about are available for completing certain things in the game. Now, five of them are for completing a certain number of objectives, and that's another interesting decision that has to be made. Starting from when you complete your second objective up to when you complete your sixth objective, you must decide whether you want to take the available bonus tile. Each tile is only available when you complete the exact number of objectives linked to it. So, for example, if you pass up on the two, three or four mission tile and you get to the fifth mission tile, so the eight points that are available for having completed five missions, if it's not there, if someone's taken it before you, you can't take it and you can't take any of the previous ones as well. So there's a cat and mouse kind of thing there, pushing your luck. Do you push for the ones that are worth more points for later on, or do you play safe and take one earlier so that you can't get blocked out? You can only ever take one of those tiles. 
There are also bonuses for completing three senators or three provinces of different colours or one of each province colours. Also, on the objectives, there are some drawings of what look like different resources. Now, there's lots and lots of different resources on there. They don't really come into play yet. I'm guessing maybe they're going to be linked to expansion. There's just two that matter. That's wheat and gold. If you complete the most wheat or gold objectives, again, you're going to get five points in a bonus. Now, the game continues around, everyone taking turns to be town crier and putting their legions on their cards until someone has completed their seventh objective, at which point you're going to total up all the scores you've had from bonus tiles, from those straight up scores from objective tiles, and also from the bonus scores that some objectives give you. And whoever scored the most points wins the game. It's as simple as that. Sean, have you got any thoughts on Augustus? Firstly, I really enjoyed this game. It was, it was a very, very fun game. Only negative for me at all, and it's not really a negative once you start playing the game, you realise that they don't really affect the game, is the cards, there's a lot, the cards are quite busy, there's a lot going on in the cards that don't necessarily have anything to do with the game, and it looked initially like the cards were going to be quite confusing, and as you said, there are resources that you don't use in the game, and I'm wondering if it's not going to be in an expansion that they're going to start using those, what's the point? But other than that, yeah, it's a very, very simple game. Really quick to pick, to pick up. If you've played any games at all in the past, you'll pick this up really quickly, and you can definitely play this game with young children. Yeah, I mean, it is simple, and young kids can play it, but they're not going to play it as well as people who are more familiar with games or, or people who are more grown up. There are decisions to be made. You do need to think about what you're doing. It's mechanically very, very simple. It's bingo, isn't it? It's pull something out of a bag. Do you have it matching on your card? If so, bang, stamp it with your little marker or put your little legion on there. So mechanically very simple, but enough in there that good play will be rewarded and it's going to be the best player who's had some luck is going to win the game as opposed to it's just completely random, no decisions to be made. There's a lot of fillers, I think I've said in the past, that about this length, half an hour, what have you, you know, pull something about, whatever, it makes no difference what you do. In this game, there are decisions to be made. You do need to think about which objectives you take, what bonus actions they give you, and how they chain together. If you can get a good chain of actions together and start completing two, possibly even three objectives at once, it's really going to give you a head start. You're going to get first dig at those um, bonuses for having most missions done. Sean, do you think there are any decisions to be made in the game? Oh, definitely. I agree with everything you just said there. I think the beauty of this game is that you can just play it with people new to games or with children. But as you said, yeah, you're going you're gonna to be rewarded for good play, which is something which this game brings that a lot of games around it in the market don't. I think it combines a lot of not a lot, but it combines a few elements that people will be familiar with. Things like set collection. There's an element of resource management going on there. There's definitely the press your luck mechanic that you'll see in games like Ink and Gold with the final victory points for for collecting your sets going on. They're very simplistic versions of these, but they are there and they do lend to good gameplay. Yeah, there's definitely a thing there whereby there's bonuses which are going to make you more effective during the game. But it's such a quick game that you can't really go after them. So, for example, some of the objectives, if you complete them, it allows you to use two of those mobilization tokens as each other. So 
shields become chariots and chariots become shields, for example. It gives you more flexibility in completing. But those ones that have got the better bonuses are going to give you less victory points at the end of the game. So there comes a point where you're thinking, all right, is it worth me going off to be more effective when really there's not long left at all? Should not I really be chasing the big point objectives, which are usually harder to get? They don't give you any bonus at all, but a whopping great number of points. Again, little decisions on what objectives to take. It's it's not a big thinky thing. You're only going to take 10 seconds or whatever. But it does actually engage the brain to some degree. The other thing that I think was big plus is, Sean, loads and loads of downtime in this game, no? Absolutely. I was sitting there for hours on end just twiddling my thumbs. No, there really is. And that's the best thing about this game for me, is there is absolutely zero downtime. No matter what's happening in that game, it's affecting you. Every draw affects you because it's, as Ronan said, it's bingo. You're always looking up for your number, and in this case, your item, whatever they're called on this, to come up. You're always waiting to see if you can fill your card, and yeah, no downtime at all, which is brilliant. It's also nice that when you're waiting for one thing, you get a chance to have a good scream at the town crier for not pulling out the one token that you're really hoping for. I like the chance to shout at my seven-year-old daughter when she's not putting things randomly out of a bag that I like. Um, the bits are quite nice, Sean. It's quite nice quality to the game. Overall, it's fun. It's, I think the design of the game is it's okay, but I think the fun is where this game comes into its own. It's all about just fun, just having a laugh, a little bit of strategy to it, but let's not get too bogged down in the strategy because this game, for me, is all about no downtime, in a group, having fun, and just playing an enjoyable game. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, very quick to play. You can play it with a range of people. You could definitely introduce this to people who don't play a lot of games. They'd be on it. We've played it with children. I've played it with adults. Everyone's had fun. Usually we play two or three games of it in a row because it is so quick. And when you've gone, done, gone in one direction, you start thinking, oh, maybe if I'd gone in the other direction, I could have done this. Slight strategic choices to be done in half an hour. I like it. It's a filler with some brains to it. It's not brainless. It's a good game, and I'm really glad I picked it up. Sean, your final thoughts on Augustus? Uh, I, too, am glad you picked it up, and I'm tempted to pick it up myself. I enjoyed it that much. So that's our thoughts on Augustus. talk about a game called Kingsburg, which came out in 2007, again from Fantasy Flight Games. This was designed by a gentleman called Andrea Chiaviesio, I hope I've pronounced that even close to correct, um, and he did Olympus and Arcanum, and, and it was also uh, designed by Luca Ianeco, again, not sure about the pronunciation, but he also worked with Andrea on Olympus and designed a game called Fairyland. Kingsburg plays two to five players, and with an approximate 90-minute playing time. Kingsburg is a city-building game, with dice rolling and worker placement, where your players are taking on the role of lords sent by the king to frontier lands. There are five rounds in this game. They represent years, and are made up of four seasons, <clears throat> which act as the productive stages of each round, where you can gain new resources, and there's also four in-between stages, which are a small, specific action takes place. But the main, the main hub of the game takes place in your productive seasons. So in spring, summer and autumn, 
Each player will roll their set of three dice and use the results to influence the characters from the King's Court who are lined up on the game board. These people are numbered, so when you roll your dice, you can place all or any number of your dice, but it has to reflect the number on the actual board. So if you rolled nine three threes, then you're probably going to want to look to place on six and three. But you can only place one at a time. So if you don't place, place that three or don't place that six, it might be gone the next time round. So there's a little bit of strategy there. So by placing your dice on this person, you're influencing them, and they are going to give you a good, an ability, or a bonus uh, to be used later on. As I said before, each person will place one dice at a time or one set of dice at a time until everybody's dice are used or they can't use those dice anymore because the spot is taken on the board. Once that is done, the players will then attempt to construct buildings, walls, monuments in their little city board. These will generally give you victory points, but they can also give you bonuses for later in the game. During the winter, everybody's going to be attacked by an invading army which will be made up of goblins or demons or barbarians. There's all sorts. And these will increase in strength as the years go by. In the base game, the king will send some soldiers to assist you. And this is done by rolling the dice and adding that to your defence score. If you are successfully in the defence of your territory, then you'll get a bonus. If you fail, then you will be penalised. I think mostly if you just manage to make the defence at the same number, it's no effect. At the end of the fifth year, the person who has gained the most victory points will have pleased the king and will have won the game. Now, Ronan, I know that you've played this game quite the number of times. Yeah, it was one of the first kind of Euro games I was playing when it very first came out a few years ago. And I absolutely loved it initially. I could not get enough of this game. The rolling the dice was a lot of fun, and it's a real good intro to resource management. You're collecting that wood and stone, you're deciding what to go after. It was funny, it's got that little bit of dicking over to it. You know, I look at what I've got, I look at what everyone else has rolled, and I say, "Eh, (laughs) if I go in the eight, it screws all of you lot over. You're all going to be fighting over the same spaces next time round. Because if there's lots of fours rolled, for example, then obviously the four space is going to be at a premium. If you rolled a couple of odds, you can start really, you know, giving some people some problems. I like that the luck is mitigated a little bit in that whoever's rolled lowest gets to place first, so they can't be completely blocked out usually. I like, really like the fact that it's progressive in that as you build the buildings, you get slightly more powers, you become slightly more effective, you're better at this, you're better at that, depending upon where you build in those 25 spaces. And I, what I really think one of the big selling points for initial gamers is that it's constructive. You are creating something all the time. You can see that you're building up. You can see that your roles are giving you resources, that you turn into something, and you've got that satisfaction of your own little player mat, and it's developing, and you're becoming a little bit stronger and a little bit stronger. I like it. It's got a good arc to it. Yeah, it's a game that I currently really enjoy. It's very, very, very simple in terms of just the gameplay and the structure, but I think it's got hidden depths to it, this game. I think there's a lot going on. You can be very tactical. You can stitch people up by watching what they've rolled and think, well, what are they going to go for? Let me minimise what they can collect this turn. There is an element of your city building, which is your little area for you to build. And it's kind of the way the way you described Agricola, where you're building your own little thing. No way near as complex as that, but it's your little town and you're building it up. There's different areas that you can chain, 
where you can go all about defence, you can go all about influence your dice. There's different ways to go in this game, and that's what I love about it. It's not just a simple roll your dice, pick your resources, and spend them as you can. That's what I think there's more to it. Sorry, Ronnie. It looks like there's different ways to go, but actually, I think, now, I've played a good few times, but there could be some people that know more than me. There's only one real winning strategy. It's get your military built up and then whack that top row of the board for as many points as possible when you don't have to worry about the invading armies anymore. There could be some Kingsburg experts out there who are going to tell me I'm completely wrong on that, but I found that that was... Sorry, if you went after that and other people didn't, you generally had the edge. And if everyone went after that, it did come down to who rolled best. Now, I'm saying this after playing this quite a few times. It's not something you're going to discover after half a dozen or even a dozen plays. It's if you keep going, you keep going... I don't think there's that much strategic variety in the game. I think they tend to go the same way once people find a way that they like playing. For me, it's not a game that I will come back to again and again and again and again. It's not quick enough that it's a filler that I don't mind playing because it's gone. And it's not deep enough that I think there are just so many endless plays to this that I don't mind playing it forever. I got to a point where I think this is the best strategy. This is what I'm generally going to try and do. The luck is, it's not too overwhelming. Like I say, you have 15 rolls of 3d6, so generally it's going to even out. But whoever does get that edge and roll in, they're probably going to win. So eventually, mostly because you guys were annoying me to play it practically every time we got together, I did trade it away. Do you not think that the predictability and the sort of set way of approaching the game just comes to any game that you get really, really familiar with. No, I don't think so. I think if you look at the games that I like most, there's more variety to them. The variety doesn't have to come from the mechanisms as well. I think we've talked about this before. I'll give you a couple of examples. Spartacus, for example, that I tried to get in the vault. That's always different every time you play because of the people. Because the game gives you a framework and then you interact with each other. And those human interactions are always different. Or Dominion that we did put in the vault. There's massive, massive changes in that when, when we play it. You know, it depends what Kingdom cards come out. And then within that set of 10 Kingdom cards, there's going to be different ways you can go. So huge variety. Or Agricola, depending upon what uh, minor roles or occupations, or minor improvements rather, or occupations you get, you're going to start going down different ways. And every game is different enough that there are different paths to, to go over. You know, dominant Species. Every game is different because of the way the different people interact with each other. The different elements that come out, the board develops differently. Kingsburg, those spaces are always the same. Your board is always the same. There's three resources. I don't want to rag on it. It's, I, I do like this game. I don't think it's got real depth and huge replayability. I want to talk about the expansion to this. Now, a lot of people believe that this game goes hand in hand with its expansion. And you shouldn't really play without the expansion. The expansion does add things. So it's called uh, to forge a realm. And it adds player character cards. It adds event cards. And it also adds number tokens instead of that role for the king's aid. I think it brings a lot to the game. Does it bring enough to the game that it should always be with the game? Or do you think that there's playability on Kingsburg on its own? I think that there's good and bad in that expansion. The first thing, the reinforcement tokens are a must, definitely. If you take out that added randomness of the dice roll for reinforcements, because what happens is you get a set of six tokens, zero, two ones, and a two, three, four, and you choose which one to play each year, 
and the one that you haven't played, you score that number of points at the end of the game. Instead of making it a kind of a random thing, that attack at the end of each year, it makes it more strategic. You can kind of plan, go, there's a a reason to go after military early. So those reinforcement tokens, I think, are a must. The character cards, I'm a bit meh about, you know, you can get screwed over by getting a, a better character. The events... I never really bother with because I don't think they add much. They just make something a little bit more difficult to get or something a bit better to get. I'm not so fussed, but I don't really like event cards in a lot of games. Like, I'm not fussed with them in a Small World or I'm not the biggest fan of them even in Edo, and I like that game. So the bigger boards that you get, so you get a board that's got seven rows rather than five. Yeah, that's cool. That seems like it opens up more paths to victory for you. And also what you get is alternative rows. So everyone draws two and they replace a certain row on their board. So it brings more variety in. So yeah, it refreshes the game. I think that if you like Kingsburg, get the expansion. It is a good expansion. It brings some new things in that are not just the typicals. So yeah, it is a good expansion. I like it. Okay, well to sum up for me on this game, I do take on board a lot of what Ronan's been saying. And I'm starting to feel it creeping into my consciousness when I'm playing this game, but I'm not quite at the level he has. I haven't played it as many times, and I'm still getting a lot of enjoyment out of this game. I like to Forge a Realm, and I like all aspects of to Forge a Realm, and I do find it a better, more enjoyable game with all the aspects brought in from that expansion. As I said, I'm still really enjoying the game, and I'm still looking forward to playing it. Ronan? I like the game if you haven't played it by all means give it a pop you'll find a real fun light to medium weight euro which should be done in about an hour and a quarter an hour and a half i have seen games of this go three hours by the way if you play this game for three hours just stop just call it i don't know how it can take that long that's a personal pet peeve of mine okay it's a real good fun game especially introducing players you want to take a step up from real simple games this is good it's introduced a lot of euro elements to them to forge realms a good expansion get that after you've played it a while if you think it's getting a bit stale but even with the expansion eventually it did get stale for me so i would play it but i'm not going to be asking for it to come to the table anymore okay that was the game pit discussing kingsburg section i'm going to talk about a couple of games and a couple of real games that are aimed at the family market and those are temple run speed sprint card game 2013 release and dixit which is another family-based card game a 2008 release i'll go for temple run speed sprint first it's from spin master games now they really are a mass market game and you can probably tell that this license is going to get given to a mass market company temple run is a massive hit as an ios game We'll talk about that iOS game in a sec. And it's designed by Brady Lang, who's got no real background in hobby games. He's designed lots and lots of what we'd call family or kid games. Now, the iOS game of Temple Run is real simple. Start off and you're running away from some kind of scary monkeys. You've got an idol in your hand. And you're going to be running along a straight path. And you're going to be jumping over things, sliding under things, turning left and right at corners. You're going to pick up bonuses. You're going to be trying to collect coins as you run. And it's just a continuous going on. You're always getting faster. It's getting tougher and tougher and tougher game, which, like I say, has been a huge hit. And there's all kinds of licensed versions now. There's an Oz version for the new Oz film. And, gosh, there's some other versions which I can't remember. So, obviously, someone's looked at this. 
as with a lot of things now, they've looked at the expansion in the board gaming market and they've thought, I'll tell you what, let's make a couple of games out of this. Now, there are two games out at the moment. This game is the card game. It's the quicker version. There's another version out, and maybe we'll talk about that another time. In this game, it's real, real simple. There's a timer that goes in the middle of the playing area, and everyone gets a runner between numbers one to four. So if there's three of you, obviously, you're going to have runners one, two, and three, for example. You're going to get dealt out 10 or 12 cards, depending upon player number, and those cards are going to say simply left, right, jump, slide, or invisible, which is a joker card and counts for any of the other four. You're going to press the timer, which is going to start, and then it's going to call out a runner, so it's going to say runner two, and then it's going to call out a type of card, which you must put into the middle, and then press the timer before three seconds have elapsed. So it's as simple as runner two, left, press the button. Runner four, jump, press the button. If you don't play the right card, or you don't press the timer in time, you're going to hear the screeching monkeys. You have to take that card back, and you have to draw another card from the pile. And the winner is the person to get rid of their cards first of all. That's it. That's the entire game. It's all based on playing cards quickly, a real-time issue, and trying to get rid of those cards as quickly as possible. Sean, I know you sat down and played it with us. What were your thoughts quickly on Temporal Run Speed Sprint? Initially... I was wondering why you were sitting me down in front of this pile of crud. It looked awful. You're pulling it out of this cheap box with cheap cards and this weird-looking thing in the middle of the table. Ten minutes in, I wanted to play it again and again. Simplest game ever, but so much fun. So much stress going on from, from your girls as they were screaming at the thing, as they were smashing the, the center timer. Awesome fun. I don't think it was just the girls that were screaming. I think you were screaming a little bit as well. There was a little bit of scream coming from me, but it was very exciting. And you know I get excited with things like that. Yeah, I don't know whether it's true or not. Or it just feels like it. But it seems like as the game goes on and you're getting less and less cards in front of you, so you've got less options, it's getting a bit more difficult to get rid of your cards. It feels like the game speeds up. You've got less and less time to actually play the cards. And the other thing that we had to make it uh, slightly more fun was you could only play the card and hit the timer with the same hand. Otherwise, you're playing the card and hitting the timer simultaneously or actually the timer first or what have you. And that brought a bit of tension into it as well because such a simple thing to do. Hear the word right, to cut the card that says right from in front of you, put it in the middle, press the timer. Becomes surprisingly difficult when someone else is down to only one card left. Another thing this game has is the pass mechanism where the centre timer will call out player one, pass, and you've got to pass a card to whoever you want. That brings a lot of fun because it's a catch-the-leader aspect, really, but it's just... Firing cards at someone you don't really like, which is usually you, Ronan. So it is, but sometimes you panic, and you start giving the card to the person opposite you who's got nine cards, and not to the person on your right who's got two cards left. Now, what do I do that for? The simplest things become difficult just because of this time element. Yeah, great, fun, 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 fun game. <laughs> How many funs? I don't know, I lost count, but there's a lot of fun in this game. Yeah, when your kids want you to sit down and play a game, you want something that's tolerable. Not something that's going to last two hours, not something where everyone's going to get bored. This is brilliant. It doesn't even last ten minutes most of the time. It's just smash, smash, smash. Everyone's having a bit of a giggle. Right, let's go have some lunch. The next game I'm going to talk about is another family game, but I think it adds a lot more to this family gaming experience. Tolerable and a little bit of fun should be the minimum standard you're looking for when you're playing a game with your kids. You shouldn't be sitting there hating the game. They're going to get that you hate the game, and no one's going to be enjoying themselves. So, Temple Run Speed Sprint, good game, just what you're looking for. Dixit, I think, is something a bit special. It's a 2008 release. It's from 
Libelud Games and some of their games they brought out. They produce real nice games. They work with Asthma Day, but Seasons, for example, is one of their big late releases. And the designer is Jean-Louis Rubira. And as well as designing lots of these Dixit games, there's three or four major sets out for this. There's also Dixit Jinx and some other Dixit kind of similar games. He's also designed Fabula. So Dixit, how do you play it? Well, when I describe it to you, it's not going to sound like much. You get a hand of six cards. And from the players around the table, one person starts as the storyteller. They pick one of their cards without letting anyone else see it. And they give some kind of clue as to what's on the card. Now, all these cards, this is the heart of the game, have got fantastic artwork on there. There's Some of them are really simple, some of them are very intricate and detailed, but all of them you can interpret in different ways. And it's that interpretation of visual information which makes Dixit a bit special, like I said. Now, the storyteller picks a card, and they're trying to give a clue as to what card they've chosen. They put it face down, and they tell you something about it. Now, the key to giving that clue is you don't want everyone else to know what your card is, but you don't want no one else to know what your card is. So it can't be too obvious and it can't be completely obscure. Once you've given that clue, all the other players pick a card from their hand, which they think everyone else will guess is the card intended from the original clue. All those cards go to the storyteller who shuffles them up and then just lays them out in a row. Everyone apart from the storyteller now has to guess which card was the original card which the clue was taken from. If everyone guesses correctly, or no one guesses correctly, the storyteller is going to get no points whatsoever, and everyone else is going to get two points. But let's be clear, points are pretty much secondary in this game. It's very much an experience game. If some people guess right, then the storyteller scores three points, and whoever's guessed right gets three points. And also in that case, whoever has the card which was guessed by someone else as being the original card is going to get a bonus point for fooling them. And that's it. Gameplay goes round, everyone get, goes, draws back up to six cards again, the next person around the table becomes a storyteller, and they give a clue. That's how you do the entire game of Dixit. Sean, you've played it quite a lot with us at this house. It's a massive favourite here. I've given that away already, haven't I? What do you think about Dixit? What a beautiful, weird, wonderful game. The artwork is spectacular, but oh so odd. Some of it's scary, some of it's just lustrous, beautiful, some of it's just beyond weird, but it's supposed to be like that. It's got to inspire imagination and to get people thinking about it. Yeah, lovely, beautifully crafted game, and not just for kids at all. I think adults would have just as much fun with this game. Yeah, I think one of the telling things about that artwork is that the two clues, weird and scary, have been banned in this house because there's far too many cards that that could uh, relate to. When we think about playing games to teach our kids, it's mostly we focus on counting skills or reading skills or just teaching them fair play. We, We focus on pretty hard, kind of measurable skills. I found that this taught not just my kids, but myself as well, something else which can be important. It's a real appreciation of visual information and looking at something and not just taking it at face value, but taking kind of the meanings behind it or interpreting it in a way that's unique to yourself and then being able to discuss that. Because a lot of the time we don't just put the cards out, someone chooses, we score some points and move on. We have a bit of a chat about the cards, about who chose what, why did you choose this, why did this for you? And that's where a lot of the interest comes from it's when you're starting to dig in and chat about what this detail meant to me or that detail meant to that person i think that's really great as well it's 
not just a game where you score points. It's also a game for providing stories, and the stories come from art, and it builds kind of a bit of an appreciation there, which is something I know that I certainly don't have. I'm not a visually artistic or creative person at all, but I love playing this game because it, it makes me think in a different way. Yeah, this game, for me, it, it brings back sort of a warm, glowy feeling of when I was a child playing games at Christmas time around at my uncle's, and the whole family together playing a game. I'm going to come up with one of my weird comparisons now. Oh dear. It reminds me, and I apologise, but think about it. It reminds me a lot of a favourite game that we used to play at Christmas. In terms, just the feeling, not the mechanics, but the feeling of the game. And that's Pictionary. Pictionary is like a really creative, artistic, fun, funny game where you all gather together and it challenges you to come up with ideas and challenges you to be quite creative in what you're doing. And also you can all have a laugh at the weird things that people come up with. And that's what I get from Dixit. I love sitting around with you and your family, and when your youngest daughter starts explaining why she's called something the frog and the moon, when there's no frog or no moon there, it's wonderful listening to her talk about it, and that was the kind of feeling I used to get playing Pictionary. I think one of the differences is, though, that some people are not comfortable playing Pictionary because they feel pressure in having to create something themselves, and that whole idea that you're going to get judged for what you've done. Whereas in this, you're not really judging people's own creations. You're discussing something that someone else has done. So I think it takes away one of those negatives. Like I, I actually really enjoy Pictionary, but some people don't because of that issue. Same way some people don't like playing charades or what have you because they feel like they're doing something and they get judged by their peers and that's an uncomfortable thing for them. Whereas in this, if you guess wrong, no one really cares because everything is valid. There's no, that doesn't look like a frog riding a bicycle, as you would have in Pictionary. That's... No, okay, I can see where you're coming from there, and if that's your interpretation, then it's correct. There's, there really is no right or wrong, which is why the points don't feel so important. Um, I will go to one negative with it, and this is the only times it's ever fallen flat, is I think it's quite hard to play with strangers. It's People get a little bit self-conscious. You can't really have that opening up. You're not sure what references there are for people or whether they're going to follow with you, and everyone around the table really has to dive in to the game and engage with it to make it a really enjoyable experience so when you play with people you don't know that well sometimes it can be difficult yeah absolutely i mean that's why i think it brings me back to my childhood around family members people you are comfortable with and you are comfortable being a little bit strange with and you're not on your guard at all and i think yeah that's when this game comes out into its own it's so much more thought-provoking than you could ever imagine, just sitting there with this one card, trying to come up with a phrase or a saying or a couple of words that are going to describe that card just enough for you to be able to get that through to one person. And that's where the interaction and the familiarness comes through, because you can look at one person and say, that person might just get it. I don't think these will. So I'm going to go for that, and I'm going to go out on a limb. And that's where, yeah, there's even a little bit of tactics coming in there. So I think, yeah, it's a beautiful, warm, friendly game, and I love playing it. I think I've made it quite clear. Fantastic game. I love it to bits. It's one of the best times we have as a family, sitting around and having the laugh and giving that younger daughter sort of slightly funny looks, but trying not to feel, make her feel self-conscious because of her strange explanations. So two family games there. Temple Run Speed Sprint. It's very cheap. It's about £10. It's fun. It's 10 minutes of laughing, giggling, and, and a bit of jumping around. Dixit, I think, is something really special there. I'd encourage you to give it a go. I mean, it's not just for kids. 
Playing it with adults is a lot of fun as well. Get it out with your mates, maybe a couple of glasses of wine, a couple of beers. It's really a fun experience, so highly recommended. Both of them, but Dixit's something special. Sean? Absolutely, yeah. Temple Run, fun, Dixit. A little bit more thought-provoking, but a little bit more immersive. And for me, the two of them would make for an excellent family games night in, or even just out with friends, as you said. So, yeah, for me, it's definite thumbs up. talked about a game called Arkham Horror and I tried to get it into the vault unsuccessfully but now we're going to talk about its baby brother in many ways Elder Sign which is a 2011 release also from Fantasy Flight Games designed by the Arkham Horror designer Richard Launius who has also designed the founders of the realm Dragon Rampage and an upcoming game called Pirates vs Dinosaurs and he's teamed up with Kevin Wilson again who worked on Arkham Horror but Kevin's also done Android, Cosmic Encounter, Descent, Journeys in the Dark 1 and 2, Fury of Dracula, Arena Maximus, A Game of Thrones, Civilization, Wiz War, oh, he's done loads. But Elder Sign plays 1 to 8 with a suggested time of about 90 minutes. So what is Elder Sign? It's a cooperative dice rolling game. Still set in 1920s Arkham where you and your teams must investigate and tackle the strange goings-on within the walls of the Miskatonic University Museum. Once again, as in Arkham Horror, the Ancient Ones are bearing down on the town of Arkham and are seeking passage into the world. And if they should be successful, then the world, will, as we know it, will end. So as your team, or on your own, you must visit the various areas within the museum to close the portals, win Elder Signs, which are going to eventually stop the Ancient One from materialising. The aim of the game is to amass a specific number of Eldritch Signs or Elder Signs before the Doom Track on the Ancient One card reaches the end number. So to do this, you're going to be completing set tasks within each room. These set tasks are going to give you rewards or give you penalties if you fail them. And you're going to be trying to harvest as many of these Elder Signs should you not manage to do it, as in Arkham Horror, and I, there's a lot of references to Arkham Horror in this because it really, really is similar, you're going to have one chance to stop the Ancient One, and that's in direct combat. A little bit about the gameplay, I don't want to go too much into it. You choose an investigator. Each investigator has a special, unique power. You choose an Ancient One, which are, again, the same characters in Arkham, and you are laying out six cards, which represent the rooms or the adventure areas within the museum. There's also a foyer part where you can go if you need to build your health up or your sanity up. So once you've laid out your museum, each adventure area or room or area within the museum has a specific task or, or possibly a set of tasks that need to be met in a single person's go. Now the tasks are a series of symbols and they reflect the same symbols as on your dice. If you achieve the combination using whatever special abilities you have, there's also equipment and magic. You can doctor the dice to a certain degree. You can add extra dice. If you achieve what it says on that adventure card, then you will get the reward. 
that that adventure card offers. And this, is, again, is could be more equipment. It could be a magic spell. It could be a trip to another world where you can get Elder Signs. It could be Elder Signs. But also, if you fail to do this, you will have a penalty. Now, this penalty could be loss of sanity, a loss of health, a monster appears. One thing that is important to know in the rules, for every dice roll that you fail, one of your dice will be removed, making it harder to do the next turn. If you get to the point where you have not enough dice to do the roll or your final attempt at doing the roll is unsuccessful, then that's when you fail. One one other brief point to make about this game is there's a game clock, and it advances in quarters after each person's turn. At midnight, then a encounters a card is going to be drawn, and that encounter can do good or bad things, usually bad things to you, and it will usually affect the Doom track or bring monsters into the game. So it's Arkham Light. It's Arkham with dice, or more dice. And um, that's the way that this game really comes across to me. Ronan, how did you feel about it? Well, when I first played it, I have to say I didn't really take to it. Um, I felt that it was all dice rolling, it was all luck-based, I couldn't really plan what was going to go on, and I didn't enjoy myself. But maybe I was in a bad mood that day, or maybe I was in a bad mood for those couple of months we played it first time around, because it's definitely, definitely grown on me. I've taken more to the theme, I think it's really for what it is, which is just yeah, the, the artsy-style roll, see if you get the symbols that you need. It really is quite thematic. You do feel that tension builds, especially um, as you're rolling. If you don't get the result you need, when you lose a dice and it starts getting tougher and tougher, you do feel that growing, impending doom, that imp- like, oh, it's getting harder, can I do it? It's less likely now. Oh, no, I've, it's gone wrong and I'm dead. And even if you die, there's no player elimination, which is very good as well. They've brought in that it is a problem. You, you get another doom token or what have you, depending upon the scenario, but you're back in the game again. You lose all your stuff, but you start again. It's not the end of the world. You're you're still part of the team. You're still going for victory. So it's a game that definitely grew on me. Players around me had a bit of a negative feeling towards it when it first came out, and there was a lot of feedback that it was too easy, which I'm not really feeling. Yes, we do win it more often than not, but it's never this complete breeze that people talked about where nothing was ever in danger. There is talk that maybe it's another fancy flight rule book. I don't want to be ragging on rule book day because it's going to carry on this theme. But there was talk that maybe people were playing some of the rules that were too easy to get wrong. The way spells work, for example, if you play a spell card, you can lock a dice with a certain um, result on it. But actually that dice stays locked with that result until someone uses it. Unlike other things where if you lock a dice result, it all resets at the end of your turn. Or the way the clock works. There's a clock with 12 hours obviously marked out on it, but you move it three hours at a time. I think people were just moving it one hour at a time because same fantasy flight, these tiny rules that they put in in the middle of sentences in their rule books, which actually are important and affect gameplay. Sean? On this occasion, I think it's a bit harsh on the rule book because I actually thought it was one of the better ones from fantasy flight. I thought it laid out the game pretty well, and I think I've looked back over that rule book, and it's quite clear that you do move it in quarters. And... It, I mean, the, the overall for them, for once, the overall structure of the round is quite clear. It's the, This time around, it's the small rules. It's the little exceptions. This is slightly different from that, which are just hidden in the middle of paragraphs. I didn't really get that in this time, but I mean, it might be just the, the one time I've actually read a rule book correctly in my life. And I just felt, yeah, when people were talking about it being too easy and a bit of a breeze, I just couldn't believe what it was, because I've had some tough games of this. And I really do buy into the overall atmosphere of this game. 
it does remind me of Arkham. It does remind me of the pressure. You are up against it. They make no bones that you're supposed to feel the pressure. It's supposed to be this unease around the place because the Ancient One's about to appear and he's in the back of people's minds causing them sleepless nights and nightmares. And it's, it's, that's what he's supposed to feel. It's supposed to be like you roll, roll one bad roll of the dice and you're just supposed to feel dread and, oh, my God, how am I going to pull myself out of this one? So I like that about the game, and I do I do think there's a lot going for this game. I think it's a relatively small production for Fantasy Fight. I think they usually go big, but they've gone quite small with this one. It's all compact and probably probably not their biggest production quality. And I've heard that... Really? Maybe... Do you think that? Because I actually I... think it's it's got lovely bits. It's not huge. It's a small box, but the bits that are in there, I think, are all really nice. Yeah, I think... I have talked to people and I have read people have got a bit of a few problems with this game in terms of the bits are all small and fiddly and I like it. I think I think it does what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to be a small transportable dice game. But I have heard criticisms that the pieces are all too small. The only one I would say is too small is those tiny, tiny little character photos that you put on into the room if you're in the room. You can't make out who's, which character's on those. But other than that, I think it's fine. Okay, yeah, I do agree the player pieces are really small. That doesn't work so well. One of the things about the players I think is really good, though, is that each player is very different. They have got different powers, and those powers are very important, and you have to use them well to do well at the game. That's something, again, I think that brings out the theme in that if I'm the student, I can do this, or if I'm the vagrant, I can do that. The way they use items differently, or they get different bonuses for doing that, or you know, some of them can, can ignore the bad results of a terror dice roll, for example, or monsters can't appear on their turn. You know, They all add something different, and that also encourages conversation around the table, because Everyone know, doesn't know everyone else's power, so everyone has to discuss, oh, how's best to play? What can you do here? What can you do there? Oh, you're suited to go to that room because that can't happen to you. Well, I'm suited to go here because I can use this for that. And one of the other things that encourages conversation rather than dictation around it is that on your turn, you're going to roll dice. Now, someone can't tell you what to roll on the dice. They can't say, right, you have to roll this and you have to roll that. You know what you have to try and to roll. So another game in which you cannot say this is exactly what you should do on your turn. It's, hmm, okay, what do you think? What do you think? Your power's quite good for that. Right, now give it a pop. Absolutely. I agree completely about the different investigators. However, one small caveat to that is I do feel that some of them are a lot better suited to the game than others. Now, I know it's Bob the Salesman I had a problem with, and for the life of me, I can't remember what his power is, but it's rubbish. There's some of them who just pick up an extra item when they choose an item, and an extra spell when they choose a spell. There's definitely ones, I think it's the scientist who I can't remember her name, she she basically doesn't spawn a monster ever on her go, which is really handy. And Amanda, the student who can complete any any amount of tasks, so she gets the dice roll to finish two or three aspects of a task, you can just crack on and do them all. That's really handy. Some of them are not so powerful, but I suppose it gives you a challenge using some of the less powerful ones. I think also, when you, if sometimes you're playing with the less powerful ones, you have to take some risks. You have to go, oh, this isn't very likely, and if I don't do this, we're going to get a doom token that's bad news, or someone's going to die, but we just have to go for it. And if you're playing the game and you don't have to take those risks, it could be quite boring. If you get into the stage where, oh, we just have to go for this and hope for a good roll, I think that lends quite a lot of excitement to the game. You definitely have to take risks. It's not an easy ride to victory. 
And it's those risks when they pay off that give you the sense of elation for completing a game like this. It's just like Arkham in that way. It's when you take a risk and it pays off and the team win or you get a real sense of, I've done well here. I've, I've actually contributed to this by taking that risk. If it was easy and you just knew my power, my power is more than enough to deal with that, I'm just going to go in and clear that room. It's done. Don't worry about it, people. Well, there's no game. That's just doing things that you know you can do. Right, so for me to sum up, I enjoy this. I think it's a very good game. I think it's a good social game. I think new gamers can enjoy it. I think there is enough here for experienced gamers as long as they get on board the theme. Not so much mechanically, but just for enjoyment. And to be honest, I am yet to be convinced that Arkham Horror offers anything more that you can't get in Elder Sign, and it takes four times as long. So I will take Elder Sign over Arkham Horror every time at the moment. Sean? I love Elder Sign. Some of my very, very small issues with it is it is quite long for a dice game. It can go up to two hours if you have a particularly tough time with it. It is a little bit luck-based. Yeah, it's going to be frustrating sometimes. Sometimes you are just going to get the worst luck and it isn't going to be the most enjoyable game. But that's dice games. If you're going to buy a dice game, that's what you've got to expect. For me, it's a fantastic game and it is a great alternative to Arkham, which I still believe is the superior game. Just before we sign off on this, there is an expansion coming out for this and it's going to bring even more Arkham into the game. They have introduced blessed and cursed dice which people are getting really excited about because i think it does more than it does in arkham it's, it's going to be more in your face in Elder signs they're also bringing in more investigators uh more in location cards but the main thing is going to be the blessed and cursed dice so i'm definitely going to be purchasing that and great game and that was us discussing Elder sign One more game up for discussion today, and that is the 2007 release from Czech Games Editions, Galaxy Trucker. It's for two to four players, suggested playing time of about 60 minutes. The designer is Vlada Shvatel. Now, he is a big name in game design. He's done Through the Ages, Major Knight, Space Alert, Dungeon Lords and Dungeon Pets, and the really great party game Pictomania. And Czech Game Editions, as well as bringing out all those games, have also done uh, Zolkin, the big hit from last year, Last Will, Shipyard, 20th Century, and the somewhat notorious League of Six. So, Galaxy Trucker, it's a real-time shipbuilding game in which you're using tiles to build up a spaceship, and then you're going to fly that spaceship on missions, you're all going to be going on the same missions together, and probably your spaceship's going to get blown up at some point. And it's meant to be light-hearted and fun with that real-time aspect. And this is it, what it's themed around. It's you work for a corporation who fly cheap building materials out to the edge of the galaxy. And rather than paying for cargo space and what have you, they've decided they're just going to get people to build ships out of these junk, if you like, and then try and fly them and see if they can survive. So you are very much expendable. And the way you're going to do this is all the components are placed face down in the middle of the playing area. Each player gets a template for their ship. It's a certain shape in which the tiles are going to fit. And those templates are going to get bigger and bigger as the game goes on. It's played over three rounds. You start with a very basic small ship, and it gets a bit bigger and a bit bigger. What every player does is 
there's an egg timer. And depending upon what round you're in, the egg timer is going to get flipped a certain number of times, and that's how long you're going to get to build your ship. But it gets flipped by the players, so the players themselves dictate how long you've got to build, which can be quite funny or it can be quite stressful, depending upon how good you are and how good the players are with you. The different components that are available are you start with one cabin in the middle of your ship template and then you need to find some engines to put on the back of the ships so you can propel it either to get away from dangers or to get through empty areas of space. There are cannons you're going to have to put on the front and side of your ship to help shoot people who are going to try and steal your stuff from you or try and blow away meteors that are going to try and hit into you. There are special engines and cannons which use batteries. They're more powerful but you need to have batteries on board and spend the batteries you get for those to be able to uh, fire these engines and cannons. There are also shield generators, they also take battery power, and if you're going to get hit by certain things as you fly through space, they'll help you out. Importantly, there are cargo holds, both normal ones and special ones, because on your journey you're likely to encounter certain planets, and those planets are going to have goods which are going to become available to you, and you're going to be able to take those goods, put them on board your ship, and if you manage to deliver those goods, they're going to score you lots of points. There are structural modules, they're just connectors that connect the different areas of your ship, and also there are some alien habitats, which allow you to bring in aliens if possible, which are going to boost the engine and cannon power. Now, each of these tiles are going to have between one and four connectors off them, and the connectors are going to be one of three different types. They're either going to be single, double, or universal. And as you place these tiles onto your ship template, you're going to have to make sure that all of these connections are legal. So a single can't join up to a double, and guns can't have anything in front of them, and engines can't have anything behind them. And if you want to have an alien on board, you must have a crew space next to it. And there's a few fairly simple rules as to how you can build up your ship within this space. But they appear to be not that simple when you bring in the real-time element. Now, once the timer has been flipped a number of times depending upon the round, and again, it's up to the players to flip that timer, so you're almost setting your own time limit, although you can wind each other up by flipping it quickly, um, you're going to start going off on a flight around the galaxy. And the way that's simulated is everyone puts their ships on this circular track and there are a set of adventure cards. These have been drawn before you start building your ships and you do have a chance during the building phase to look at the adventure cards to know what's coming up, to give you some idea on what you're building towards. And they're going to give you different things. You're going to come across open space where you're going to have engines, you have a chance to overtake each other because whoever gets to the end of the mission first is going to get a bonus. Also, whoever encounters cards first is going to get the first chance to deal with them, be it planets to get the first chance to get the goods to make money or to deal with some of the more unpleasant things if you're confident in how good your ship is so you're going to come across the likes of uh, smugglers or slavers or pirates and they're going to have a certain gun combat value and if you can beat that gun combat value you're going to get a bonus for doing so so you might be able to take some goods of them for example or just get some credits for shooting them down for a bounty so if you've got a fast ship and you've packed up with guns you might want to be in the lead you also come across things like abandoned ships or abandoned stations, whereby if you've got enough crew on board in those crew areas, you can put them onto the ship or station and take it over and get a bonus for doing that. You're also going to come across meteor swarms, which meteors come flying at your ship, and if it's not well built, if it's got connectors which are going out into the open, some of those meteors can get in and they can really cause you a problem. Another thing like that is stardust, which... Every exposed connector you've got, so you haven't made your ship well and rounded it off, it's going to get in, it's going to cost you days. There are combat zones where you're going to get shot at or you're going to lose time or maybe some of your crew will die. And there's some other ones like Epidemic, whereby a load of your crew members, if they're next to each other, are going to die. So you can see that there's lots of bad stuff that's going to happen to you as you go through. And what you're trying to do is limp through to the end of the round, get bonuses for getting your ship to the destination, 
whoever's got the prettiest shits, they've got, they've got the least connectors showing, is going to win some points. You're going to deliver your goods. However, any bits of your ship that were blown off or destroyed or hit by meteors or fell off on the journey, that's going to cost you some money. And at the end of the three rounds, over harder and harder and harder situations, whoever's made the most money is going to be the winner of the game. Sean, any thoughts on Galaxy Trucker? This one's a really difficult one for me. I'm really not sure what I feel about this game. There were elements that I enjoyed when I played this game, and there were elements I hated. Now, I don't know if I was in a bad mood and I wasn't enjoying things that I would normally enjoy, because I felt like things that I should be enjoying. For instance, the first phase of this game when you're building your ship, normally I don't like route building things, and there is a route building aspect. Is I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed putting it together. I wasn't very good at it. But I really enjoyed building my ship, and I was quite proud of my ship that it wasn't a complete wreck by the end of the round. The second phase, I felt a little bit pedestrian. I felt like I was just sitting there. There was no no strategic element to the second phase. You're just kind of sitting there waiting for stuff to happen. And watching your creation, your baby, being absolutely devastated was, was nice. And I did have one round, I think it was the second round, where on the very first go, I just could not get crew when I was building my ship together. Couldn't get them. Couldn't get any people in there at all. And eventually, I think I managed to get four or five crew. And the very first card of that round, of the second phase, took eight crew away. And I'm just sitting there with nothing. I've got no crew, so therefore, I am out of the game. That's a third of the game that I had to sit and watch. That's not true. It's not a third of the game, because you only had to go through the rest of that adventure phase, which is usually quicker than the shipbuilding phase. So, maybe a sixth of the game. <laughs> okay, okay, point taken. But yeah, it was a big chunk of the game that I just felt I was sitting there watching. And it was very frustrating, and I did get a little bit upset. And yeah, really... but you have to approach the game on the level it's intended. It is supposed to be funny. It's supposed to be funny seeing your ship get blown to pieces. I played this uh, a couple of days ago with two guys who were brand new, never played it before, and on that third mission... Mine was the ship that got cut in half, and theirs were fine, and I've played it plenty of times. And it, you just have to laugh. You have to ask, ah, oh, what bad luck. Now, the things that are coming to hit your ship, you have to roll dice as to what area of the ship they're going to hit. And if you've built it slightly poorly, and you've only got one tile that connects one half to another half, well, if you get hit there, your ship's going to fall apart. And I stupidly built my ship like that, and that's what happened to me. Yeah, I do, I do get that, and I think there there is a reward. But I think the game almost ends for me like the game aspect of it almost ends after that first phase you can't do anything more apart from roll the dice yeah uh, but i mean that's that's part of the fun that's what it's meant to be is in the pressure the real time adds pressure right it'll be really easy to build this ship if there's no real time element to it you know and flipping the timer you just sit there and you plan it all perfectly so that puts a bit of pressure on you and then the idea is to see it's like i don't know it's like Robot Wars or something. You make your creation, then you throw it out into space, and you see what happens, and enjoy the ride. Do you feel that there's an, uh, a little bit too much luck involved in this? Now, you can build a wonderful ship that may... Everyone's going to have a weakness somewhere. You're not going to be building the perfect ship that's defended on all sides and has got massive amount of rockets and massive amounts of lasers that are going to defend you from all angles. You're going to have a weak point. A few bad dice rolls on that weak point, and your ship, which possibly appeared to be the best ship out there and was 
by far the best creative ship is going to get blown to smithereens while someone else's heap of crud that's barely trickling through space limps all the way home. Is this really Sean complaining about dice rolling and luck in a thematic game? <laughs> is this you? That's why I can't get my head around this game. I should love it. But my first go, I was really 50-50 on it. Ah, uh, but it's a 60-minute game, you know? Well, don't get, don't take it too seriously. Enjoy the shipbuilding thing. Then well, how long does it take to do those adventure cards? Five minutes, maybe? If it goes wrong, it goes wrong. Five minutes' time, you're going to be building again anyway. Don't take it too seriously. It's it's fun. It's stressful, but fun. Um, I think one of the things as well with regards to... I mean, building the perfect ship, you do have a chance to look at the adventure cards. So... If you're that good, you can read the cards, see what's coming up, and plan accordingly. Of course, that's when everyone else has to start flipping that timer quickly so that all your careful planning goes to pot. It's funny. Well, I want to flip my last point completely on its head and come at it from the other side. Do you think that after that first phase, it's probable or almost inevitable you can tell who's going to win that particular round because they've just made the best ship and everything else is academic? You can't have it both ways, you know. <laughs> I think you can look at it and you can say, probably that person's going to do really well. You can just look at it and go, yeah, they've got loads of cargo hulls, they've got their guns and all the rest of it. Yeah, sure. Because the thing with the whole game is that different player experience is really, really important. Now, you've played it once, and as I said to you, when you're able to cope with the third phase, that building that big ship compared to the first one, and you've dealt with the much harder um, challenges... When you go back and play again now and play that first round, you're going to be fine. You're going to be like, what was I worried about? Having played once or twice makes a huge difference. Now, when I'm teaching it to you and the other guys a couple of days ago and that, I won because I played it a few times. But I play against guys who have played way more than me, and they destroy me. They absolutely smash me up. So one of the problems with the game is that player experience is very, very important. If I've played it more, I'm probably going to win. But I think it's worth getting those couple of games under your belt to get better at it because as you get better it actually becomes funnier because rather than just dreading the flip of adventure card you get a bit confident on the flip of adventure card and then you get blown up anyway Hi Ronan, um, before we sum up anything else you want to talk about? Yeah, there's a couple of things uh, I'm going to stick to the theme of my ranting this week and this rule book <sighs> Vladich rattles all his rule books they are terrible he has a particular style of doing a rule book. Ah, oh, Space Alert especially, but this one as well, whereby he tries to be funny. He is funny. The rule books are funny. They're entertaining. You read them and you go, oh, that was a great read. Now, how the hell do I play the game? And when you're playing the game, you want to find a rule. How the hell do I find the rule? They're written like stories, not like rule books. And, oh, they're such a pain Trying to learn Space Alert is such a pain. Trying to learn this game is such a pain because he only filter feeds you amounts of information. And then someone comes at you as the person who's teaching the game and you can't answer their questions because I haven't got to that bit of the rule book yet. I don't know. He hasn't told me all the rules. They're built as if, if everyone around the table read the rule book and played the game of it by themselves first of all, it would be great. Everyone would know how to play. But as a teaching aid, awful. God, they drive me crazy. Okay. The other thing is, I was talking about you get good at the game if you play it a few times. The good news is there's two expansions come out for it. You had the big expansion, and is it another big expansion? And I got them both anyway in the fifth anniversary edition. I got it from a very kind Secret Santa. Thank you very much. And 
they add more challenge to the game. So if you get too good at this, now that's going to take you quite a while anyway. Those expansions make it harder. They're bringing different components, more challenges, different kinds of aliens you can put on board. And you can never fit everything on your ship to meet all those challenges. So there is a possibility there of ramping it up and ramping it up and building on it. And I think if you love the game, there's plenty, plenty of game out there to explore. Uh, Sean, your final thoughts on Galaxy Tracker. I want to love this game. I should love this game. And I will play it again in the hope that I will love this game. Hopefully in a better frame of mind, maybe. But as it stands, it's a little bit too frustrating for me. And there's not enough going on, especially in that second phase. For me, it's really different to most other games. It's a different experience. If you get on board, embrace the theme, the mechanisms, you're not going to come across them anywhere else. I think Mondo's got the toll lane thing, but it's slightly different. It's funny. It's a bit of an experience. It's not perfect. It has got its problems in that, again, experienced players and new players, it's difficult for them to have the same sort of experience while playing the game. But it can really strike gold, and it is a game that I really love. So that's our thoughts on Galaxy Trucker. Thanks for listening to episode six of the Game Pit podcast. You can find all our episodes along with other audio, video and written gaming goodness at 2d6.org. If you want to contact us on email, it's thegamepitspodcast at gmail.com. Please follow us on Twitter at GamePitsPodcast and check out our guild on BoardGameGeek. Thanks and we'll catch you next week. Theme music by E. Barrett.